Woodier wide right, big pursuit by New York. Stevenson running for his life, throwing to the 50. Valve Lamb up the middle of the 40 on his feet, the 35. Dumped on the 32-yard line of the New York Stars. James Sims from the secondary, a 14-yard pickup and a first down with 39 seconds remaining. And this crowd of 60,000 really trying to help the Jacksonville Sharks keep it rolling because it is a partisan crowd, of course. 28 seconds now, first down. Stevenson for the sideline, stopping the clock. Edgar Scott, the intended receiver. Wendell Wilson covering, gave him a pretty good pop on the sideline. That'll stop the clock with 22 seconds remaining in the first half. If you're thinking field goal, remember, the goalpost is at the back of the end zone now. It's 10 yards longer than it used to be. 22 seconds remaining here in the Gator Bowl. The Stars 7 and the Sharks 7 on our WFL Game of the Week sent to you across the country on TVS, America's number one independent television network. I'm Merle Harmon with Alex Hawkins and George Plimpton here in the Gator Bowl. Second down. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's do this, everybody. How's it going? My name's Tim Hanlon, and uh, let's get the uh, fun and frivolity underway for this week, shall we? Uh, It's Good Seats Still Available, of course, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. And uh, when we last left you... Uh, we had just begun uh, a very uh, colorful conversation uh, with author Mark Speck, arguably the the dean of World Football League authors. Yes, the World Football League of 1974-75. Uh, actually, and as we know by now, uh, actually really was two leagues uh, with the same name, uh, the 1974 version and the very much reconstituted 1975 version. Uh, I think as people look back and as the years pile on, uh, the WFL is looked upon as sort of a one-shot deal that ran over two years. Of course, we all know that uh, collectively it only lasted basically a season and a half. But uh, as we uh, dig deeper, we uh, we start to learn that indeed there were sort of two incarnations of this league. Uh, that just to show the uh, uh, just incredible amount of uh, dysfunction and bad luck and uh, and other things in between. Uh, that beset this league. Mark Speck uh, is our guest again this week, and uh, he is the author of uh, three, count them, books on the WFL with a fourth one on the way. Uh, we'll talk about uh, some of those uh, in the rest of our in the, the rest of our conversation, our part two. Uh, but uh, as a reminder, uh, those books are uh, the World Football League Encyclopedia, his book that he uh, co-authored with Todd Mayer. Uh, the uh, book about the Florida Blazers, one of the teams of the WFL, called And a Dollar Short. Uh, and then uh, the book that uh, is probably the, uh, uh, the, the primer, I guess, uh, for the casual sports fan who doesn't even believe that this league actually existed for its, uh, its short period of time is called Wiffle, the wild and zany, sometimes hilariously true story of the World Football League. All those books are published by our friends at St. Johann Press. Uh, and um, we're going to uh, just get right back into it. Uh, give us a couple of seconds to uh, knock out a couple of promo items, and uh, we'll get to our chat, shall we? Fantastic. Uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. I can't think of a more apt sponsor for this week's episode, and uh, that's the place where you're going to find a bunch of WFL World Football League 
items for purchase. All kinds of memorabilia there from all kinds of leagues and teams. At sportshistorycollectibles.com, use the promo code GOODSEATS and get 15% off your purchases. Uh, do that now. Do that early. Do that often. Sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS. Why not get 15% off your purchases? Thank you to Dean Mitchell, proprietor of our friends at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Uh, and don't forget your audiobook, free audiobook download and uh, and one month of the Audible service. There's 180,000 titles. Just, just think about that for a second. 180,000 books to choose from. How can you not find one title to listen to and enjoy a free trial of such? Uh, do it now, please. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the place to do it. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. You can cancel at any time. And, uh, and again, you're going to get a free audiobook download to enjoy, to understand the magic that is an audiobook. And uh, also enjoy the free service for a month and get a, get a taste of all the various uh, treasures that await you uh, at Audible, uh, the amazing audiobook service. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Please, by all means, give it a try. We appreciate your doing so. Okay, part two of our uh, wild and wacky conversation uh, with author Mark Speck uh, as we continue our journey, our discovery, our investigation, uh, our unearthing of uh, stories from the old World Football League. Coming up, please enjoy. Well, you mentioned uh, Christopher Hemedier. Uh, Hemedier, is that how you say it? Hemedier? Hemedier? Yep. So he was the uh, owner of the Hawaiians, and, and he uh, essentially steps in for um, for Davidson uh, literally in the sort of the, the last third, I guess, of, of the remaining season. Um, why him? Uh, who is he? And um, and and how does this how does the league sort of limp through uh, the rest of the season? Because it does seem, though, despite all of this stuff, right, which is just gigantically cataclysmic i mean in retrospect um it seemed like the quality of play uh albeit not at the level of the nfl ever really um was still not bad and, and quite competitive and, and still a pretty interesting product on the field oh yeah i mean and especially after they you know they were once the nfl started back in again had training camp and they had all the cuts from the nfl they got a lot of very good players toward the end of the season their level of play went up and it did go up. You know, a lot of, you know, NFL players that, you know, that had been cut by the, the NFL and went to the WFL and uh, played there. Um, you know, once Davidson got out, they needed somebody who they, you know, was a very good businessman. Hemeter kind of filled that bill because even though the Lions didn't do well at the gate, they really didn't lose that much money. So they thought this guy's got to know something. And so they put him in as the as the commissioner toward the end of '74. Uh, uh, again, like you said, the, the the level of play was was maintained, even though the crowds may not have been there. But with this infusion of NFL players, a little bit bigger names, a little bit more well known, um, you know, that really helped the WFL toward the end of the season. Um, you know, with with players coming in that uh, you know they didn't have at the beginning, where it was more kind of unknown guys. Uh, and minor leaguers and that kind of thing, and they did get these NFL players. That did help them toward the end of the of the se- of the season there. And uh, you know they they did have a, an issue there at the when the playoffs were going to start. They didn't know what what kind of a, a playoff format to have. They went through about three or four 
Um, they were going to have the two of the, let's see, it was going to be two of the division winners and we're going to play and they were, they were going to play one of the other teams. And then they were going to just say, Hey, let's the heck with it. Memphis finished with the best record. Let's just give them the championship, not have any playoffs. Then they had four teams. They had eight teams. They had two teams. They, they couldn't make up their minds for, again, this got in the paper. They couldn't make up their minds for a few days there. And they finally settled on, um, the, the format that they wound up with, which was the three division winners and um, the second place team, which was Birmingham in the central and uh, Hawaiians wound up in there. They didn't wind up in the playoffs and they were going to have uh, Charlotte, but they couldn't, I think they were going to draw something like a thousand people if they played there. So they, they picked Philadelphia over Charlotte, even though Philadelphia finished with a worse record than Charlotte did. So again, it was just kind of convoluted. They did the best they could. Florida beat uh, the uh, Philadelphia in the first round, and uh, Hawaiians beat um, Southern California. And then it turned out that uh, then Birmingham beat the Hawaiians, and Florida upset Memphis, and it wound up being uh, Florida and Birmingham in the World Bowl. And it was a great game because Birmingham jumped out to a 22 nothing lead into the third quarter, and everybody thought it was over. And if the Blazers scored like 21 points, just came up a point short. And so, yeah, the level of play was still there. The games, the playoff games, for the most part, were pretty close. They weren't blowouts. They weren't boring. Um, so, yeah, because of this infusion of a lot of talent, Randy Johnson was a Giants quarterback who had been cut. He went to the Hawaiians and really picked up their level of play there at quarterback. Uh, Pete Bethard went to uh, Portland. Uh, they won. They, they were like 0-7 or 0-8, and, and then they wound up winning almost all of their rest of their games and almost made the playoffs because they added Bethard. And uh, uh, Ben Davidson actually wound up playing with them from the Raiders. And a lot of these guys that came in from the NFL really did help the level of play down the end of the of the, of the season. Yeah, that's interesting that uh, that the um, uh, the, uh, the the cast-off, shall we say, of the training camps from the NFL uh, and the players that sort of came out of that, that was it's almost like a, 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 a transfusion or an infusion of uh, – of uh, of life, shall we say, uh, in the midst of uh, of of the season. So that's interesting. That's, that's a, probably a little known sort of fact as to sort of at least how the quality of play. But uh, you mentioned the World Bowl, right? Which was the original idea is to have a sort of a, a championship game in a neutral site. I think Jacksonville was originally uh, chosen as as going to be the site of the World Bowl. But of course, with the team no longer. Uh, in the mix uh, by the end of the season, that that could not happen, of course. So I, I guess what you were saying is that that playoff. Um, uh, the the questioning around how the playoffs uh, would be formatted, I guess, was uh, almost a uh, a real time reassessment. Given the fact that uh, you had a couple of franchises that had moved and two teams that uh, had not even made it to the end of the season, um, but that cacophony certainly couldn't have uh, have helped the confidence of the coaching and uh, and and the players. But even the World Bowl itself, right? Uh, another microcosm event, I guess, of the entire league uh, uh, extravaganza writ large. Uh, even the World Bowl could not escape uh, the issues behind the scenes off the field, now could it? No, no, not at all. I mean, it was at Birmingham, which, again, had led the league in attendance. They figured, well, yeah, the Americans are playing in it, but, you know, let's have it at a city that's going to support it. Um, and sure enough, they did, but it wound up that, you know, they had actually papered the house there. It was, I think they announced it was like um, 30, high 30,000, and it turned out it was like 20-some thousand. So, and most of those people sat up in the cheap seats. Um, so they didn't really, you know, make as much money as they thought. 
Um, the game itself was pretty good. Like I said, uh, the Blazers almost came back to win, but then at the, when the bell, uh, the, the whistle sounded at the end of the game, the Blazers were so ticked off because they had lost and they had not been paid in like five months. Um, I think it was Billy Hayes, the defensive back, ran it, grabbed the ball, took off with it, and all the players are chasing him because the Birmingham wants the game ball. Billy Hayes runs down the field. His players are, like, blocking for him. It's almost like a kick return. His teammates are blocking for him, trying to get him into the locker room before they can hit the the game ball. And they, sure enough, I think they they wound up with it, and they gave it to Pardee because, you know, the great coaching job that, and is mentioned in my book is that, you know, he just kept his team together despite the fact that they lost, um, you know, and uh, lost so much money and didn't get paid, managed to keep the team together. Um, so you had that going on. And then while the Americans are undressing and, and uh, you know, celebrating their championship, the sheriff deputies are coming in and taking their uniforms and then uh, repossessing them because they owed money on them. So guys are throwing their helmets and, uniforms out to their wives out the windows before the IRS guys can get there and they're throwing them out there so they can try to keep them. So they're, they're throwing out their helmets and their, you know, their jerseys and stuff out to their wives and and their families outside here, take this before this guy comes and gets it. So it was a comical scene. And again, another story that is a part of the lore of the WFL. Yeah, I mean, I, it's my understanding that uh, the, the, the game in Birmingham was uh, questionable and whether it was going to be uh, to actually take place because the Birmingham uh, American franchise, uh, I think, was uh, had owed something in excess of $200,000 in, in uh, back federal taxes. And I think the if I'm not mistaken, I think the IRS, I don't know, can you imagine the negotiations or who has these conversations, right? The IRS allows the game to be played if they could share the gate receipts. Um, I mean, I, you could not imagine a more comical and uh, and crazy scenario uh, to allow a championship football game to be played, uh, you know, when you're negotiating with the IRS uh, to come up with a uh, payment scheme, shall we say, uh, to satisfy old debts. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, it was they had to get part of it. They got most of it. I don't think, geez, I, I think. I don't know how much the Blazers wound up on the top of my head. It wasn't very much that they wound up getting from the game. It was it was just a pittance, really. And uh, another thing was that they, why it wasn't gonna the game wasn't gonna happen was because Birmingham, the players went on strike the week before the game because they had been paid. Because again, because of Putnam signing all these extravagant um, signing bonuses to these NFL players for these future contracts to people like Kenny Stabler and Elsie Greenwood that the team had no money. So they, they went on strike. They weren't going to play. And then uh, Putnam promised them rings. Uh, if you if you go and play, we'll, we'll give you a championship ring. And I think that took about 20 years for the players to finally get those. I think they've got them in around 90, 1994 or something like that. It took that long to get the rings. But that's that's how he placated the players to get them to play. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, there was a, all kind of background stories to the, the World Bowl itself, even – even right up to the end, uh, the WFL just could not escape these comical, weird, wonderful, wacky stories that had haunted them since since they started. All right. So what did the postmortem look like after this uh, uh, amazing and ultimately disastrous season? Uh, what, what was sort of the what was sort of the wreckage and, and what did Hemeter uh, kind of uh, uh, inherit, so to speak? And, and, and what was his plan to sort of maybe hopefully possibly turn it around for uh, another season? 
Well, at first, I, I, a lot of there's a lot of the talk was that they weren't going to have a second season. They just weren't going to try it. They wound up not getting as much TV money from TVS as they had hoped. I think they got about half the money that they had been promised because they just didn't sell uh, toward the end of the season because the ratings had dropped. Um, it wound up Portland had one one employee at the end of the year, and that was Ron Mix, who was the general manager. He was the only employee left, and they really didn't have a team. So a lot of the teams just folded, went by the wayside. Bassett, again, one of the owners that kept his team together. Um, it, it wasn't until the next, early the next spring that Hemmeter come out and some of the and some of the owners said, hey, what are we going to do? Are we going to give it another shot? Let's give it another shot. Uh, they decided to. Um, they started looking for owners. Again, I think they did a little bit better job of looking for owners. They had the, the famous Hemmeter plan where, you know, players got a, a, a part of the gate. Um, if they got, if you know, the gate was bigger, they got more money. Um, now the players, some of them kind of resented that because, you know, you have guys like uh, Zonka kicking Warfield who are, who are bound to their big contracts and they're getting bigger money. So, you know, there was a little bit, not a whole lot, but, you know, it wasn't until, um, you know, early in the, in the, in the spring of 75 that they said, well, let's give it a shot. They, they went around looking for owners. Of course, you know, Florida had gone by the wayside. New York was gone. Charlotte was still hanging in there. Upton Bell said, you know, let's give it another try. Um, Chicago, Ryder had had enough after the season. He was gone. Um, they were looking for owners there. Um, Southern California, um, they, I guess Sam Battistone, who had actually owned Hawaiians, moved in, moved into Southern California and went there. Um, Shreveport stayed in. Uh, but again, that's a small franchise. They tried again with Jacksonville with new owners. Um, so yeah, they, they tried to rebuild it again in 75. They had Zonka kicking Warfield coming in. They had some other guys that were from 75. Daryl Lamonic had signed with Southern California. They, uh, they didn't hold a draft for college players. They didn't hold one at all. I'm not, uh, I'm never sure why. I guess they just weren't organized enough at the time to have a draft. But somehow Southern California did get Anthony Davis from USC. He was a great find and he was a great addition for the Sun. They also got Pat Hayden, who was a quarterback at USC because um, you know that he was such a low draft pick in the NFL, and they offered him more money with Southern California. Um, so they did get some infusion of new talent with some of the guys they signed to future contracts and some of the rookies that came in. The owners seemed to have a, a better plan. Um, they were a little bit better checked. Um, they had money. Uh, John Basacco in uh, Philadelphia had very deep pockets, even though he was playing now in Franklin Field and didn't get the crowds because, again, it was just kind of leftovers from 74. And I think they had to had to deal with the stigma of trying to battle that leftovers of 74. A lot of people still didn't think that they were a, a major league, a viable product in the in the market with the NFL. Um, and I think that really hurt them going into 75, even though they did have a better plan. So it's interesting. I think a lot of people today sort of don't recognize that uh, that really uh, the World Football League of 1975 uh, was uh, not only dramatically different uh, because of the efforts of the Hamilton plan uh, than the, its, uh, uh, its forerunner in the season prior. Uh, it also feels to me that uh, I think actually legally, too, it was literally a completely separate league, yet it kept the same name. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was called the New League Incorporated. 
Um, and they said, no, this is completely separate from the WFL of 1974. Uh, we don't um, acknowledge their debts or anything. This is a completely new entity. We don't um, recognize that, even though they did have those stats from the 74 in their media guide. They said, this is a completely new thing. So they try to go it that way. People just, unfortunately, just did not buy it. They just didn't say, no, okay, yeah, all right, it's the same old thing. Um, even though they tried, again, they, I think they did a better job in 75. And I think if, if maybe if Hemmeter or somebody like him would have been in charge in 74, things might've been better. I don't know. And it's just speculation on my part, but, you know, having some kind of a plan in place, whereas I don't know if Davidson really had much of a plan. Um, it did help. They did make it through, I think 13 weeks of the 75 season before it finally, they just, some of the teams wanted to keep going. Some of the teams didn't. Some of them just said, you know, we've had it. Let's give up the ghost. Um, but some of the teams like San Antonio still wanted to play. They had Their owner was, was a fairly good owner. He was well, um, well known in the community, a very good civic leader, uh, Norman Beaven, um, a very good guy, uh, ran the team well, but they were going against the idea that the San Antonio Toros, who had been a minor league team there for years and had been very successful and have, the local fans loved them, and now they had kind of driven them out of the city, and now this new carpet-bagging team had come in. They were kind of the, the remnants of the Florida Blazers and an expansion uh, team, basically. And I think a lot of the fans there resented it. Their crowds never really um, really matched what they should have and what their Toros had done for years before that because they, they kind of had adopted them. And now it's like, Oh, well, you guys are in here now. What are you going to do for us? And they did kind of resented the fact that the Toros who were beloved in, in San Antonio uh, were now out. And now you had this new team and then they had some uh, legal problems with the owner of the Toros filing suit against the, the owners of the wings. And he had all that going on in the background. I mean, he had a good team that won all their home games and lost all their road games. So they finished like seven and six, but they're an exciting team. They had Johnny Walt, the quarterback, who was very good. You know, you had some teams that that still were good. Memphis, again, had a good team, even though uh, Zonka, Kick, and Warfield really didn't make much of a difference because they were really targets, you know, for the other players who kind of, again, resented that. Dave Roller was known. He tackled Kick real hard in one of the games and laid a good hit on him and got up and said, welcome to the WFL. And, uh, you know, so they, you know, they, they didn't really make a much of a difference with Memphis as they could have, uh, Memphis did have Danny white at quarterback. So he was a big help again. I, uh, you know, he'd been, uh, you know, drafted by the Cowboys, but decided to play for the Memphis team, um, Hawaiians, they did get Aloha stadium built in time for, well, at, I think I asked the first couple of games in 75 and, but they couldn't still really sell that many tickets and they weren't doing very well. But uh, it was just really fighting that stigma of 74, even though the product seemed to be better, uh, it was better run. It just, they just could not overcome that idea of, you know, that lack of credibility from 1974. Yeah. And you mentioned Memphis, obviously probably the strongest of, of both years. Uh, frankly, one of the only teams that uh, actually had the same ownership through both of those two years. Right. So um, again, going back to Bassett and, and team, yeah. and, and actually there's a sort of a classic Sports Illustrated cover uh, in July, late July of 75, that has, uh, uh, you know, uh, Zonka and uh, Kick and Warfield uh, on the cover. Um, so it's not like national sports media wasn't uh, paying attention to round two of this thing. But uh, obviously, uh, you know, 75, uh, uh, you know, didn't um, 
uh, it didn't nearly even last full, the full season. But, but maybe one interesting little story uh, in the 75 season was maybe, uh, I want to call it the nail in the coffin, even before the, that season even started, but is the story of the Chicago wins, the, the new team in Chicago to replace the fire, uh, and its, um, uh, its pursuit of uh, a legendary NFL player uh, that I think uh, the – uh, if that were to be achieved, uh, was actually going to be the key to getting a television contract for 75, and obviously it didn't happen. You want to spend a couple of seconds on on that sort of pursuit? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a, that was a big thing. I mean, they, they TBS really was kind of on the fence about whether they were interested in having a second season. The ratings had not been good. They had not made the profits they had in 74 uh, that they wanted to in 74. And now they they were asked to you know be in, in there again, and they thought, oh, I don't know, we don't know if we want to tackle it. So Chicago went after Namath. Joe Namath was a big you know in a big way. Um, they had a new owner, Eugene Polano, who was a jeweler in New York or uh, in Chicago, excuse me. They hired Babe Pirelli to be the coach because Babe was an old teammate of Joe. They thought that would help recruit him. They changed the colors of the uniforms from red and black and white to green and white, like the Jets. So, I mean, they're doing all this stuff. They did have a, a – they almost had a, a, a contract signed. That everything was agreeable. Namath was agreeable to it. And then at the, at the end, they said Namath wanted 18% of the TV revenues, 18%. Well, they said, geez, you can't have 18%, but you'd much rather have – are you going to have 82% of a TV contract or no contract? So Chicago really wasn't thinking ahead, in, in my opinion, and should have taken that and said, you know, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll take 82%. we got to have Joe. He's going to sell tickets. You know, he's going to put seats in the fan, you know, fannies in the seats and uh, really help our franchise by having Joe here. And we're going to have a TV contract again. So, but they didn't really think ahead. They said, no, that's it. That's a deal breaker. We're not going to sign you. Um, so Joe stayed with New York and the Chicago. They also went after Walter Payton. And they almost got him. They were trying to get him, um, but he wound up signing with the Bears. They did try to get him. I, I can't imagine a team with Namath and Peyton and then John Gilliam at wide receiver. I think they might have done fairly well. They at least lasted longer than the four games they did before they folded. But, you know, again, you, you, they're not, you're not using a lot of foresight to say, okay, okay, Namath wants part of the TV money, fine. We still got the largest portion of it, and we've got a TV contract. Now we don't have one. So, you know. Um, again, some of the business decisions were a little bit, uh, questionable and that was probably one of them. If they had assigned him and said, yeah, sure, we'll give you 18% and we'll go ahead and start the season. But you know, they didn't, they said, no, that's it. We're not going to sign you. And, uh, and then the TBS said, no, they backed out. They said, no, we're not going to have you. If you don't have Joe, um, we don't want to have you. So that was a pretty bad, uh, pretty bad happening there with the, when they couldn't get Joe. Um, I think that kind of was a was a big loss because they didn't have New York anymore. They had Chicago would have been the biggest market. And then once it folded, then, you know, you're, you're playing in markets like Shreveport, Charlotte, um, and, uh, you know, like that. There were smaller markets that not, at the time were not like they are now. I mean, you know, San Antonio's got the NBA team, you know, um, and Charlotte's got the, you know, the Carolina Panthers. And, you know, but at the time, these were looked at, especially in the South, they were looked at as smaller markets, San Antonio. Um, and, and a lot of these were smaller markets that people, you know, really weren't interested. They wanted the big league cities. They wanted New York, 
Chicago. You know, they didn't have Detroit anymore. Um, Philadelphia was just kind of there. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really a tough transition from 75, even though they had a good plan in place. Um, because of the fact they didn't get Namath, I think that was really a, a, really a shot that kind of uh, hurt them. That Again, if Chicago would have said, yeah, we'll take 82% of the, of the TV money, I think they would have had them, and I think maybe, who knows what it would have been. It could have been a lot different. History could have been a lot different in 75. Well, uh, so a couple of things. So television, right? The, the lack of it, uh, at least on the national level, certainly didn't help. Uh, is it fair to say that uh, national coverage generally also waned, uh, maybe because of the lack of uh, another television contract and, of course, uh, the shenanigans that happened the year before? Uh, it almost feels to me like this uh, 75 was almost, um, well, as a juxtaposed, right, to the, the bombastic uh, you know, uh, and uh, and gigantic uh, flame out, I guess, uh, almost feels completely different in 75, where, albeit better run and, and, a, and a better plan, it almost felt like there was a, a lack of uh, publicity and or it almost felt like it was being somewhat ignored, um, either because of 74 or just because uh, people had, had given up where, um, you know, they could have used a little bit more publicity, et cetera. It just seems like it felt like it was being abandoned, so to speak, by by the sports media and or maybe perhaps the fans, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the media coverage, you know, trying to find articles in 75 were really a lot tougher. The sporting news completely ended their their coverage of it. They would have, they had the box scores and they had a, um, a column by Charlie Vincent every week in the sporting news in 74. And in 75, they had nothing. They had no, the, the first picture from when they started back, they had one in the spring. You know, a little bit of talking about the league starting up again. The next mention of it really was when they folded. They had a picture of Marshall Taylor, the coach of Shreveport with Richmond Flowers, one of his players sitting there with their hands in their, you know, their heads in their hands. And, you know, they react to the, uh, you know, the league folding. And, you know, they had no coverage there. The, the, the coverage in the cities had depended. San Antonio's was pretty good, but uh, a lot of the bigger markets, you know, they they fell off. They, their coverage really did wane. I mean, you were right about that. Um, it's tougher to find articles in 75 that, that dealt with the league unless it was a team like Memphis, which really both newspapers in uh, in Memphis carried a lot of coverage on the on the South End slash Grizzlies. Um, but in San Antonio, because that was really the only game in town. Um, but a lot of the teams, a lot of the local press uh, just kind of ignored them. And, you know, the TV um, coverage, like you said, it was not a national uh, package. It was just local. And uh, the great story from 75 is when the Bell were playing out in uh, Southern California in Anaheim. And the game was like a 58-39. It was lasting quite a while because there was so much scoring. And uh, at, uh, I think it was 1 o'clock in the morning Philadelphia time, the uh, TV station was carrying the game back to Philadelphia played the national anthem and signed off with 10 minutes still left in the game. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, you know, they obviously, yeah, we have, they, they said, well, we have prior commitments and the prior commitment was playing the national anthem and signing off and people didn't get to see the last 10 minutes of the game. And, you know, that kind of sums up that lack of, you know, okay, yeah, whatever, you know, we've got the Phillies, we've got the Eagles, we've got the, you know, uh, flyers here in Philadelphia. We don't need this team. And we're just going to, you know, kind of not, treat them as, as we did when it started 
you know, um, again, like I know you make a good point because in '74 it was kind of flashy, kind of, kind of a crazier kind of an attitude. Um, you know, we're gonna, you know, have a new look to the game, and we're gonna have, you know, and that kind of thing. And then '75 was kind of tame, where it was more austere, whereas the budgets, you know, and that kind of thing. And then that kind of really didn't make it an exciting product because I mean, you know, you had to play was okay, but you know, you didn't have the fans, you didn't have the the press, you didn't have the publicity that you did in 74, even though it was negative, it was still, you know, there was a lot of craziness going on that you didn't have in 75. So I, I don't know if, you know, the, the plan was good in one way, but maybe not in another. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's, uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also uh, in my queue next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis. Uh, the Major Indoor Soccer League with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl, and that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening, and... Back to our conversation. All right, so let's uh, let's uh, let's round the curve here because uh, you've been uh, wonderful with your time, and I appreciate it. Um, so, how does '75 basically end? Uh, the winds become the first casualty, right? They uh, they are deemed, I guess, by by the league offices uh, for whatever reason not. Uh, not being able to meet their uh, their capitalization requirements, and and that team folds uh, a couple of a couple of yep. weeks into the season, 
Um, but maybe you can give a sense of sort of how how the rest of it all sort of played out, right? Because uh, the league itself didn't uh, make it to the uh, the end the end zone, did it? No, it did not. I mean, yeah, Chicago lasted about four weeks. They had two home games, and I think they averaged something around three or four thousand, and that's in Soldier Field, which is huge, which makes them even look smaller. So, you know, they just said, you know, we don't have the money. The owners were pulling out. We don't have the money to do it. They weren't going to prop them up again this year like they did in 74. They said, you're gone. So they uh, they, they were folded. Um, San Antonio, again, didn't do very well. The, the crowds just weren't there. Portland wasn't doing well. The Hawaiians, uh, Southern California did not have the crowds anywhere near. They did in 74 at, at the Big A. Um, Philadelphia, they were awful in the – in Franklin Field, they they average around four four figures, probably for the season, somewhere around like fifteen hundred at some point. Jacksonville was the same. I mean, they did they had started out great in seventy four, and uh, they got uh, down to you know ten fifteen thousand. Um, Shreveport, their crowds kind of stayed around twenty thousand. They weren't doing too bad. Birmingham wasn't doing bad. Memphis wasn't doing bad. So they, those were the three that were kind of still hanging in there. But toward the end, uh, around the you know middle of October, they said, you know, we've got to vote on this. Um, several teams voted to continue to play. I think it was like San Antonio, Charlotte, who weren't doing too bad. Uh, usually, and it was mostly some of the small markets. The bigger ones, they said, no, we're, we've had enough. We've dumped enough money into the big hole, and we're not going to do it anymore. And uh, so, yeah, they voted. Um, they voted not to continue to play, and they announced on uh, October 22nd of 75, and Major came out and said that, no, we've given up the ghost, and uh, that's the end of it. Um, and so that was that was pretty much the end. Was in, It was in October. They voted not to play. They had enough. The crowds weren't there. Uh, the press wasn't there. The public wasn't there. And it just, they looked at, finally saw it as a losing proposition. Well, in the grand scheme of things, though, right, uh, it wasn't completely a lost cause, right? Because there are a lot of things that sort of uh, emanated that uh, from that league, right? Whether it be in terms of uh, players and coaches that went on to very interesting and, and successful careers uh, afterwards, but also some of the uh, the innovations and, uh, and, and some of the original challenges that sort of led to things down the road, um, albeit, you know, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, earlier than its time, but um, maybe we can kind of just sort of uh, you know, maybe put a nice halo, uh, an ending halo to all this about sort of some of the things that the WFL, aside from the wackiness and the craziness and the uh, uh, and the trail of debts uh, that were positive, uh, sort of in a legacy kind of manner, uh, whether it be uh, individuals or uh, some of the contributions, shall we say, to the game uh, as time went on. You want to kind of speak on a couple of those items? Well, yeah, as, as I touched on earlier, you know, when they adopted a lot of their rules at the beginning of the season, um, the NFL went ahead and adopted a lot of the same rules, changed their game quite a bit, um, starting in 74. Um, you, you're absolutely right. You had a ton of players from the WFL that had not played previously that went right into the NFL. You had Danny White, who went in. Pat Hayden had a great, uh, pretty good career there with the Rams. Uh, Danny White had a long career, obviously, with the Cowboys. Um, you had quite a few that Steve Foley who played for, um, Denver in the defensive backfield for years, wound up setting the team record for interceptions. Um, so you had a lot of players that came in, 
And, you know, had a, you know, again, that Thursday night football game, the NFL wound up having that for years there for a while. We had Thursday night football. Um, so there was a lot of things that came out of the WFL. And, you know, a lot of the players then got compensated a lot better after the WFL, even after it folded, because, you know, starting with that, you know, they had that where they had to start raising salaries because they had a, a rival coming in here and, and players like Merlin Olson said, you know, we had, you know, I even had an offer from the WFL. I stayed because the Rams, you know, raised my uh, pay and they raised salaries. Um, they introduced a lot of, uh, you know, different coaches and owners to pro football like Bassett who went on to the USFL. Um, and Sam, again, Sam Battistone who went to uh, the New Orleans Jazz, even though it's a basketball team, but he was, you know, he was uh, still involved in sports down the road. Um, you know, the, the uniforms, um, some of the leagues that came about had more. And now the NFL has even more, you know, more colors in their uniforms now that, that they did before. They, You know, the uniforms were kind of bland before that. Um, you know, it took a little while, but they did. They, they, they kind of uh, jazzed up their uniforms a little bit more. Um, wasn't there even and they went into markets? Wasn't there even some experimentation with uh, uh, the color of the pants by position for some of these teams? <laughs> oh, I was wondering when you're going to get around to that. Yes, the famous colored, color-coded pants that they tried in '75. Um, they, somebody came up with this great idea that every position would have their own colored pants. They had like, um, you know, offensive linemen were green, uh, quarterbacks were white with stars on them, wide receivers were orange. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly how they went, but every position, and it was supposedly to help the, not the real, you know, the fanatical fan, but the kind of the, you know, the everyday fan that's kind of just tuning in to get used to, um, um, you know, to kind of get used to football, to kind of understand, to kind of educate them. And it just backfired because none of the players wanted to wear them. Um, the players didn't like them because if they saw like orange pants going past them and they were wearing orange pants because they were a defensive back and they're used to that, they let the player go and here either um, a rival, you know, an opponent in an orange pants. So it was kind of confusing for the players. They didn't want to wear them. Um, I think Vince Papali from the Bell said it, they look like the, the guards over in, in England um, with these weird looking pants. I've seen the video of it. It's just, you know, they had that idea. Then they also had an idea of field goals being certain different, you know, different, uh, you know, one, three, two, or one points, depending on how close they were. So, you know, that didn't work out. And they had the Dickerod in 74 that didn't work out. It was like trying to replace the chains. Yeah, so, yes, well, the, uh, the color-coded pants. Yeah, but give, give us a yes. quick – you mentioned the Dickerod, right? So uh, what was that and what is that? And, uh, and and do you have any idea where the name came from? And uh, Tell our fans what the Dickerod was or is. Well, I always wondered what the Dickerod name, but it was a guy named George Dicker, D-I-C-K-E-R, who invented it, and they called it the Dickerod. It was one – one pole that they would lay down where the where the first down was, you know, where they had started. They would lay it down, and then wherever the ball was, that would mark where the ball was. But uh, they had a, a thing that slid on the, the pole that didn't work all the time. It didn't quite meet up to the, you know, the expectations they had for it. They thought it was going to be something easier, but it wasn't. Um, so they wound up in 75 going back to the chains. But, yeah, the Dickerod was something that, it was just one pole 
they lay down one end on the where they had started, lay it over. Was it 10 yards or not? And they had these things that slid on the pole, and it just it didn't work. They they jammed up and everything, and it just it was more ridicule than an in, in, innovation in anything. So, and, well, and it was it was an attempt George, I guess, to, to give sort of the viewers, I guess, that that the, the were actually you know actually watching these games uh, a, a more visual sense of of where how much you know how much yardage was left to go in in a in a in a classic first and ten kind of. Uh, Kind of approach, right? So, uh, you know, we see today with the pylons and the, the the sort of, but it's uh, it, it's just interesting to see sort of the mechanics of this thing, uh, and uh, that sort of being a quote unquote piece of legacy, if you will, from the league. Oh yeah, it is. Yep, the Dick Rod was one of the uh, one of those that uh, you know, that one of those ideas that seemed like a good idea at the time just didn't uh, didn't seem to pan out. It also uh, like color coded pants. Yeah, it's also interesting too that uh, I think people kind of forget that uh, the goalposts, right, uh, in the NFL, right, until 1973, uh, were actually uh, at the uh, uh, at the goal line, right. So the WFL and I guess the rules were going to be changed for the 1974 NFL season, but but the WFL actually was the first uh, because of the the, the date of its schedule. Uh, they actually uh, the first league to actually uh, professionally put goalposts uh, in the back of the end zone. Uh, I think many people kind of forget that that uh, prior to that we were looking at uh, bumping into the uh, uh, into the goalposts uh, actually in the end zone uh, before that. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you see a lot of videos from the old NFL where you see these guys smacking into the goalpost there on the goal line, or you know they had a goal line play and a guy would jump over the pile and smack right into the goalpost. So they finally. Yeah, I, I think what it, one of the reasons it came about, besides the fact it was a very dangerous practice, was that the you know the NFL had become a big kicker league where there was kickers that you know because of the fact it was a shorter distance, it was easier for them to kick field goals. There was a lot more, you know, they get down so far and then they would just say, okay, we'll just kick a field goal. And kickers had become very prevalent in the NFL. The WFL didn't want that. The WFL wanted more offense in, in terms of like touchdowns. They didn't want the extra point. They had the action point again. Um, so yeah, they moved them to the back. They were the first ones to do that, and uh, you know I think it helped their, you know the the kickers. Depending on whether how you look at it, whether the kickers were bad or they just didn't make a lot of field goals, they just the kickers didn't do a very good job in '74. And uh, I don't know if it was because the kickers were just bad or it was because of the fact they were kicking you know a longer field goal, but. Um, yeah, I think that was one of the reasons they did it because the NFL had become so, you know, prevalent with field goals and kicking, and they wanted to kind of open up the offense a little bit. And that was one of, you know, the the league founders, including Davidson's ideas, was to kind of you know put some more offense in. All right, last question. Uh, given uh, your your deep dive into the history of this league and continuing so, um, what? What what lessons uh, have you learned from this process, and what uh, what did you think you knew about the league before you went into this exercise uh, that changed in the process of of putting these stories and these books together uh, coming out of it? Well, I think you know uh, you know you can easily look at it and kind of ridicule it a lot, you know, and I think at your first glance, anybody's going to do that. I think I even did that. It was kind of, you know, all the stories, but then you look deeper, you look at the human interest story, you look at the fact that the WFL had the first black head coach in the NFL in the pro football since the 1920s with Willie Wood at Philadelphia. Everybody thinks it's Art Shell and Oakland back in the, uh, 
90s, but or 80s. I'm not sure when he came in, but it was actually Willie Wood who was the, the coach of the Philadelphia Bell. You had that. You had black ownership in the WFL, which you did not have any in the NFL at the time. You had Detroit, even though they, again, weren't very wise in running a team. You had like owners like Marvin Gaye, like Esther Edwards. You had several other black owners there in Detroit. Um, you had Rami Loud down in Orlando, who was a black owner down there. He had a black general manager. Um, so you had a lot more, and you had a lot more um, black quarterbacks at the time in the WFL than you did in the NFL. I think it was probably triple the number of black quarterbacks. The NFL, I think, only had like half a dozen, if that, while the WFL had closer to 10, 10, 12, you know, quarter, black quarterbacks um, in it. So they were a lot more colorblind, I think, in the ways of ownership and players and coaches. There were more black assistant coaches in the, in the, in the WFL. It was just the idea that, you know, there was a lot of these stories that I think get swept under the rug that really shouldn't. Because of the fact, if you take one, you know, the first glance, oh, man, this league was nuts. It was crazy. I mean, yes, that's interesting. But to look past that, to look past the innovations that they made, that the NFL picked up, that the USFL picked up, that, you know, other football picked up, and the 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 trendsetters that they had with in, in, in minority hiring and that kind of thing, and the rules changes that other leagues adopted, you really have to look at it as a, you know, did they make inroads that maybe had not would not have been there if they hadn't existed? Would the NFL have made those changes if the WFL had not been there? I don't know if they would have or not. I really don't. I think they were happy with the game they had. I don't think they would have opened it up like they did if the WFL hadn't been there. I think uh, that kind of part of the story really gets lost in the craziness, the zaniness of some of the stories that, you know, you can kind of chuckle at, you kind of look at and say, boy, that was crazy. Whereas if you look deep enough and you look down at the, at some of the documentation and some of the books, you know, and some of the things that were written, you got to look at some of the, some of the innovation, some of the trends that they uh, started that were picked up again by the WF or the NFL and the and USFL and it's still survived to this day. Do you think that the uh, the economy in the United States at that time, which was not great, uh, recession for sure, and the lack of consistent television and or perhaps the, you know, the, the, the non-existence really of any great scale of cable television, although I do think HBO, a fledgling HBO, had a number of games on their air, but obviously a much, much smaller base uh, of viewers. Do you think the absence of you know, uh, you mentioned holding on, quote unquote, um, you know, was the timing also, uh, you know, in the stars, so to speak, in terms of uh, not being uh, fertile ground? Or is that just a convenient excuse in retrospect? Oh, no, I think that's a very, uh, you know, very good, very good point. I think it's a it's something that you have to consider. Uh, the, uh, the, the economy at that time was awful. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, that's one one thing Davidson looks back on and says, you know, we started at exactly the wrong time when that, you know, the stag stagflation they called it, it was stagnant. The uh, you know the Dow Jones was awful. It was was tanking. Um, you know, nobody was there. There was nobody with any cash. Davidson said that in his interview um, that you know nobody was out there with a lot of cash to to put into a, to commit to a, a, a football team or a sports franchise and you didn't have that then 
And yeah, no, I think it's a valid point. I really think it's not an excuse. I think it's more of a valid point that this was part of why they didn't make it as well as people just didn't have, you know, luxury money hanging around, extra cash that they could spend on things like football games or something like that. And yes, you know, you didn't have the proliferation of sports channels and sports uh, networks and that kind of thing. Cable was really kind of just starting out. You, you are right. HBO did carry a few of the games. I have not been able to track down any, but they probably taped over them at the time anyway, or they never kept any tape of them at the time. But, um, you know, it was, they were on TBS, which again, the three big networks were not going to, um, you know, carry them. ESPN was a few years down the line. ESPN would have been great for the WFL if they'd have been in, in um, in existence at that time, just like they were with the USFL. USFL was helped tremendously by the ESPN coverage, and which led to ABC, which carried the, the Sunday game. Um, that helped them tremendously. I think that not having that big TV presence um, to be able to have um, something that was really a lot more substantial definitely hurt them. And I no, I, I don't think that's, I really have never considered that an excuse. I really think that's a valid point that the, the economy had to play a part in the, the ultimate demise of the WFL, that they just did not have the money available either for ownership or for people to go out and, and spend money when you've got lines at the gas station and, and that kind of thing. And it just, you know, it was just not a good time for a, a startup sports, uh, sports league and a sports uh, endeavor. Well, I, you know, look, the, the the World Football League, right, only existed uh, for really a year and a half, right? And um, I, I, there is so much more still to unpack about this this league, the teams involved, uh, and and I I hope we have another chance. I I, I strongly urge us to have another opportunity uh, to talk further because there's probably so many things that we've. I mean, I got a whole pile of notes here that we didn't even you know even get to. I mean, Larry King, right, calling the games for the Shreveport Steamer, right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's so many just crazy little sort of anecdotes and stuff. Um, but uh, as a prelude, hopefully to that opportunity, why don't you remind our audience uh, the uh, three books that you're part of uh, that are dedicated to some aspect of this league? And you also hinted at uh, something that you're putting together now, a fourth one. So here's your promotional opportunity. Why don't you give us the names and, and all that stuff? Yeah, well, like I said, the first one was the WFL Encyclopedia. Um, with Todd Mayer and myself, we both worked on it. It's more of a statistical history of the league. There's a little bit of blurb about each team, but it really doesn't go in depth. But it's a very good uh, statistical repository for the league that has never existed before. Um, it's something that really needed to be done, in my opinion. Um, it's, again, St. Johan Press, still in print. Um, then the next one after that, I had an idea for the Blazers, the Florida Blazers from 74, which again, I thought was a, a tremendous story that needed telling, uh, a dollar short, uh, was the name of that book. Um, again, it came out very well, had some interviews with some of the players, which were very, uh, enlightening to me, uh, which really added a lot to the book, a lot of behind the scenes stories that went beyond game accounts and statistics and that kind of thing to what, what is actually like to be there. Um, the next game, the next book I came out with was Wiffle, which was kind of a history of every team in the league, uh, quite an undertaking, but because I'd done all this, you know, it was, to me, was the next step and I thought it came out very well. It's been well, well received as, as had uh, the first two. And now the next one coming out is going to be, uh, called nothing 
nothing more than a brand new set of flat tires, which is about the Detroit wheels. It was a uh, quote that Arthur Richmond came up with in August of 74 to describe the Detroit team. Um, again, a lot of great background stories, um, a lot of great recollections from the players that, um, you know, you, you didn't know some of this stuff. It gives you more of a human interest feel to it that goes beyond the game, that goes beyond the, the on-the-field product or what they had to put up with, with not getting paid, with dealing with, uh, you know, lack of, of uh, you know, equipment, uh, basic facilities. Uh, it was a great story. Again, it'll probably be coming out sometime this year, again, through St. Johan Press, and that'll be my fourth one. Not sure if I'm going to have any more on the WFL, I've, uh, but, uh, you know, never know. <laughs> There's a lot of stories to tell. All right. Well, no, no doubt about that. So uh, let's put a, uh, a post-it note uh, on the wall for, uh, I hope, uh, if you're uh, inclined, um, a few more conversations, uh, maybe one specifically on on the Blazers and, and that book. And then, of course, when uh, the, the Wheels book comes out, uh, that story as well, uh, if you'll have us. Oh, I'd be happy to talk to you. If you ha- if you have me to talk and, and and run my mouth for a while on the WSL, I'm happy to do it. I love talking about it. I think it's something that should be told and should be documented and should be out there that people should be familiar with and uh, get to know. Well, we do too, and uh, hopefully we'll sell a couple of your current books in the process. So uh, give us a chance to do some of that, and um, we look forward to uh, future conversations with Mark Speck, thank you so much. This has been absolutely amazing, and uh, what a, a crazy league! Uh, amazing stories, and and you know, literally, I think we've just you know scratched the surface. But uh, I appreciate uh, you allowing us to uh, to do just that for a couple hours. Well, I appreciate you having me on your show, Tim. Very, very uh, happy to be here, and very happy to tell the story and and let these stories go out there to uh, fans that may not have heard about them. As they say, truth is stranger than fiction, and there's no more uh, perfect evidence of that little phrase than the World Football League, right? Uh, Mark Speck, uh, an amazing two-part conversation. Uh, we will have Mark back. Uh, there are just too many other items and too many other topics to discuss about this uh, amazing curiosity known as the WFL. Uh, let's remind you... Uh, as a as a primer to our next conversations with Mark, your homework assignments are the following books. Please go find them wherever fine books are sold. Uh, all of these are uh, published by St. Johan Press. Uh, you can also find links to all of these books that I'm about to read to you on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search for episodes numbers 51 and 52, and you will find links to all of these books uh, and I encourage you to read them all and uh, and, and memorize all of them uh, before our next episode on the WFL. Uh, the first book is called The World Football League Encyclopedia. That is the Bible. It is co-written uh, by Mark Speck and Todd Mayer, uh, and uh, that is available for purchase. You can also find uh, Wiffle, his current book, Wiffle, the, the wild, zany, and sometimes hilarious true story of the World Football League. That is available. Uh, for purchase. And of course, uh, the book that uh, we'd love to spend some extra time on uh, in a future episode, the story uh, of the Florida Blazers. The the, uh, the title of that book is called And a Dollar Short, uh, The Empty Promises, Broken Dreams, and Somewhat Less Than Comic Misadventures of the 1974 Florida Blazers. Uh, 
that is also available for purchase. Again, you can find links to all those books uh, at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Again, just look for the episodes numbers 40, excuse me, 51 and 52. Uh, let's see. Uh, we want to, before we say goodbye, we want to say hello to our friends at Podfly Productions. That's David Gregerson, Corey Coates, Dr. Jerry Payne, and Eric Begay. And uh, podfly.net, that's the place you want to go to find out more about Podfly and how they can help you to get into the podcasting business. Uh, what a fun and uh, uh, amazing uh, journey this has been. Podfly has been there just about every step of the way for me. And uh, if you recommend, uh, I highly recommend them. Uh, if you are uh, if you think you know what you're doing or you don't, and you're interested in the whole idea of podcasting, give them a Give them a look and uh, tell them that we sent you. Okay, I think they'll uh, they'll treat you e- extra special, nicely, uh, and um, uh, we appreciate their efforts and uh, and hopefully uh, continued in the uh, months and and weeks to come. All right, I'm done uh, for this week's episode. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Uh, you want to follow us on social media? By all means, do so. Uh, find us at Good Seats Still on Twitter. Find us at Good Seats Still available on Instagram. Uh, you can look us up on Facebook. And again, if you want to send us some email or, or otherwise converse with us, our website again, for the love of God, please visit early and often. It's goodseatsstillavailable.com. One last thing. Don't forget, please, to rate and review us wherever you can. Apple iTunes or the uh, Apple Podcast uh, uh, place, wherever that is, or any other place, for, for God's sakes, wherever you're listening. Just give us a rating and review, some some stars. Tell us how we're doing, and uh, that helps our algorithm. We get discovered a lot more easily, and uh, it also recommends the show to others like you who might be interested in these crazy topics. Uh, All right, until next week, we we appreciate your listening again, and uh, take care of yourselves. Uh, Drive safely, as they say, and uh, we'll see you next week.